Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Bob Zachmeyer with Win3 Realty in Tucson, Arizona. Last year, he closed 98 transactions with a total sales volume of $13 million. His average sales price was $132,000, of which 40% were buyers and 60% were sellers. Bob has a five-member team, two buyer agents, one buyer referral, one broker owner, and one team leader. Bob Zachmeyer is the team leader of the Win3 Realty team. He's been an agent for 18 years. In his career, he sold almost 4,000 homes. In his best year, 2011, Bob sold 641 homes worth $76 million and earned $3.1 million in GCI. In this call, Bob talks about getting small to net more. His goal of selling half as many homes each year while earning twice the income. How he earns $30,000 by selling a $100,000 house. Why he's putting together seller carryback financing sales. How he's replacing his income stream by taking a note instead of a commission. Why he's selling lower priced homes to earn larger paydays. How he finds sellers who are open to seller carryback and private lender financing the script he uses to present his ideas to sellers, how he finds buyers who need creative financing, have access to large down payments, and are willing to accept properties as is and make the repairs themselves, the way he structures monthly payments to be less than rent, how he finds investors who want to put up money and become private lenders, what he did to eliminate his landlord problems and turn it into monthly mailbox money, Team Dynamics, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Bob. All right. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me. Hey, Bob. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Okay. I worked at Raytheon. I was a manufacturing engineer and worked in the program office of Raytheon for 22 years. And I started investing in real estate back in 1982. And I had a lot of rental properties and 2002, I walked into Raytheon and quit. I left $100,000 laying on the table and walked away. Wow. What happened? I was just very frustrated with the uh, position and just the bureaucracy of corporate America. And I owned quite a few rental homes, and I just thought I could do a lot better in real estate. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, we did. Let's fast forward to today, and first of all, how long have you been in the real estate business? I got my license in 2000. I did my first real estate investment in 1982, so 35 years. When you got your license in 2000 and you became an agent, did you have a 
fast start or a slow start that first year? Well, I was still working 12-hour days as an engineer. I sold three homes my first year. Okay, so you started selling homes before you put in your notice at work? Yes. Ah, okay. I sold three homes, two were to myself. I was an investor, so I, I sold myself two. I had one client the first year. And then the second year I did 10, and then the third year I did 26. And that's when I walked in and quit. Good. So you were selling real estate part-time before you made the transition to make sure that it was going to work out. Correct. Well, let's fast forward to today. Last year, how many homes did you sell and what was the sales volume? Last year, my total home sold was the lowest it had been in 10 years. And that was actually by design. I actually have a written goal to sell half as many homes and make twice as much money. But last year was 98 homes. That's down from you know, highs over 500 a year for several years in a row. The volume was about $13 million um, of total sales. What was your best year? In 2011, I hit 641 homes in one year, and that's almost two a day. <laughs> we actually had it down to the hours. We were selling a house every 14 hours and uh, 24-7, 365 a year. And the volume of sales that year was $76 million. The price point had dropped quite a bit because of the recession. Our gross commission for my team was $3.1 million. In your total career, how many homes have you sold and what's been the total volume? Do you know? I have to estimate that. I know the number. The number, we're closing in on 4,000 very quickly. I mean, in the next year or so, the volume is somewhere north of 570 million in total sales volume. Now, let's talk about that comment that you made, which is really interesting. You said your goal is to sell half as many homes and make twice the income. How do you do that? Well, I've always been sort of a a change agent. And I I just constantly, coming from an engineering background, I tracked the market. I saw the recession coming before most people did. I shifted gears. You know, we went from having no inventory and uh, in 2005, six and seven and prices going through the ceiling. And I started building houses and you know, I would actually find lots you could split, and then I hired contractors, and we had teams in place, and we were turning homes around in two months. And my clients would buy a lot and split it or add a second home to it, and I'd find the financing for them from people self-directed at retirement accounts, and they would build the new home with a private money loan, turn around and refinance it, and get out. Then when lending stopped, and they didn't want to refinance the properties anymore, and the recession hit. Then I got into REO, and I started by applying all over the country, and you know it just was getting nowhere. And I went to uh, the Five Star Conference in Dallas in September of 2008, and I'd never been to one of these conferences, and I just I took my charts with me about what was happening in the market, and I I came home with a Freddie Mac account and. So I figured, okay, I know how to get these accounts now. So I would go out to a conference for three years. I was on an airplane every two weeks going to REO conferences and actually brought home 65 different banks and outsourced companies to work with. At one time, my little team had over 300 REO properties listed. And of course, that died as fast as it came. And then and they kept lowering the 
you know, the amount of commission that they paid and it actually got to 2012 where we sold more than a house every single day of the year. And at the end of the year, we ended up losing money. And a lot of these homes, we would go in and, you know, we might make a $1,400 commission, but we'd be out of pocket $6,000 in repairs for fixing all the, you know, the stolen kitchen and, and all of the things that the house needed. So it was a little scary. I mean, that was the only business. None of our clients could sell their homes at that time because the prices had fallen by 50%. But we uh, terminated our relationship with, with most of the banks we were working with because we were losing money. I told my wife we could actually have packed up our stuff, shut down our business, went to Mexico and drank margaritas for a year and not spend as much money as our business cost us. Well, that transition year in 2013, what did you decide to do? Well, in looking around and just observing problems in the marketplace, I found that most people that had the recession had hit were now coming out, you know, the economy was improving and people were back on their feet working again. And the bank still had them in the penalty box where they couldn't get a loan for seven more years. And I found that uh, actually my mother was retired and my father passed away and um, she had money that was in the banks that used to earn 4% interest and she was only making 0.2% interest. So put that in perspective, I mean, her $100,000 account, and she had several of those, each 100000 used to earn 4000 a year and it went down to $200 a year. So we actually had a client who could not get a bank loan, self-employed contractor, and my mom funded a loan to him and she got 7% interest instead of 0.2. So that's 35 times more. And the $200,000 that was funded went from earning $32 a month to $1,320 a month. So that was sort of the aha moment. And then I sort of developed this uh, you know, system of I'm going to find these people. I'm going to qualify them with a licensed loan originator. And I don't really care any of the rules the bank has. There's so much money out there right now. There's 6,000 people a day retiring, and they're in the same position as my mother. The stock market is scary because it's at an all-time high. Everybody knows what comes after an all-time high. (laughs) And then the banks are paying next to nothing for money. So this is where you can give a first position loan on a home for 70 cents on the dollar, 70% loan to value, and earn a 7% rate of return, 35 times more than they pay at the bank. So I just started speaking with people. I have a radio show I've had for the last five years, and I started talking about the last deal that I did. And these people were retired, and they were earning $16 a month on their 100000 and now they're getting a check for $665 a month, and they will for the next 30 years or until that property pays off. So what I found is by financing these homes, one out of three people in this country is being turned down for financing right now. And the bank went from giving anybody a loan that could fog a mirror to only giving, you know, the people that have been on their job for two years. I mean, there are so many qualified people out there that are being turned away by the bank right now. And self-employed people are the hardest hit because they don't have a W-2 and the banks don't like the sporadic nature of their income. And most real estate agents would fall into that category. You have really good months and you have slow times of the year because real estate is seasonal in most markets. So I just started finding those people that had 
a good solid background. They had a significant down payment and we would put them into a loan. And then, you know, I, I initially started doing it to drive business to my real estate company to replace all of the lost REO income. But then I soon realized that, it, man, uh, you really want to be the bank, not the real estate agent. I mean, I'm in a 35% tax bracket and the self-employment tax is another 15%. So everything that I make, they take 50% of. If I invest in that note, instead of taking a commission on that sale, I don't have any self-employment tax and my gain is a capital gain over a long period of time. But to put this in perspective, on a $100,000 home, if I, let's just say I made $3,000 in commission, that same home, I could sell that and I could get a note for, say, $30,000. And there's going to be a lot of math in this, so I don't want to make it too complicated. But basically, if you go to any seller who is trying to sell their home and you explain to them that they're going to pay commission, they're going to pay closing costs, and they're going to pay the buyer's closing costs because the buyers don't have any money to pay down. They're coming out of a recession and have heavy college debt. So you're going to spend 10% of your gross sale price on selling your house. And all homes are in a price range. And you're going to either be in the low end of the range or the middle of the range or the high end of the range. So when most people look at Zillow and they say, my house is worth this much money. Zillow is very, very good at doing, they don't know anything about that house. What they're good at is knowing what the median sale price is for that area. So if you have a low-priced home with a very small square feet, Zillow is going to short you. But if you have a high-priced home with a lot of square feet, they're going to tell you it's worth way more than it is, just because they're taking the dollar value times the square feet, and bigger homes don't sell for as much as smaller homes do per foot. So bottom line, I go into a person's home. I tell them, look, this is what your house is worth. It's worth 100000 You're going to pay commission, closing costs, buyers, sale price, that's 90000 Then the home inspector comes, and they're going to usually hit you for 1% or 2% of the sale price. Just You know, there's always something. I haven't ever found a home inspector that told you, hey, nice house, you should get it. <laughs> um, so you can expect to walk away with 88% of the sale price on your home. And what if I could find a buyer who would pay you the high end of the price instead of the median price? And what if I was to bring in an investor who would just pay you, write a check today for $90,000 for your $100,000 home, but there would be no commission. And I would be the lender on the property instead of the real estate agent on the property. So basically, you got a $90,000 home that I can sell at the high end of the range for more like 110, 115 if it's financed. So the buyer of that home would put down at least $15,000 cash. We break out two loans. One would be a retired person for $70,000. And that's 70% of the conservative middle median value of that home. And then the second position note would be for $30,000. So Basically, by foregoing a commission, I can be that second note investor. The seller has agreed to accept 90, which is actually a higher net than they would get on the MLS because they're going to list their home and sell it and pay all the commissions, closing costs, repairs. They're going to walk away with 88%. Instead, I'm giving them 90. 
And then the best thing is, is they get to pick the day they want to move. So you can just go to bed tonight knowing your home is sold, and all you got to do is tell me the day you want to cash the check. So I'm just telling you, if you go to a listing appointment and offer that up, you're going to get every appointment. You're going to give them a faster sale with the least amount of hassle on their timeline that nets them more money. I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to take that. So now, basically, if I was an agent, that would be double-ending the sale, but I don't really want to earn the commission and pay all the taxes on it. I would prefer to have the investment and pay the taxes over time as I receive the money. So on this deal, if the buyer is bringing in $15,000 and the retiree, who is like my mom, is bringing in 70000 for the first position loan, those two combined are a total of $85,000. Well, the seller only needs ninety. So basically, I can buy that $30,000 note for $5,000. I will be paid interest on $30,000 when I only invested five. That payment, by the way, on thirty grand at 8% would be $220 a month. It will take me 14 months to get my commission. And every 14 months for the next 30 years, I'll receive it again and again and again and again. You're bringing in some creative finance. You're working beyond just a traditional real estate broker. You're looking at this more as an investment transaction. A couple questions here. So you just gave your pitch of what you're doing. And the first question I have is, do you walk the seller through that entire pitch? Do you describe to them exactly what you're going to do, A to B, how they win, but also everything you're going to do afterwards so there are no surprises for them coming in later? Basically, I start by asking a few simple questions. And I ask the seller, now, when you sell your home, do you want a fast sale or a slow sale? And, of course, most people are going to say fast. And now, did you want an easy transaction where you just get a price and there's no negotiation, or do you want to fight over the home inspection and fight over the repairs and worry about the appraisal and all those things? No, I'd like easy, not hard. All right? Now, this one may seem a little weird. Do you want more money or less money for your home? Well, more money. So, okay, so what you've described to me is a transaction where you can sell your home, and if you are willing to carry the paper, and just for instance, in our market in Tucson, Arizona, last month we sold 1,600 homes and five people out of 1,600 carried their buyer. So now when you go to list your home for sale, we have about 4,000 homes for sale. Do you want your home to be one of 4,000 or do you want your home to be one of five that have financing on it? Which one do you think would sell fastest? Well, I like the idea of 5,000, but you know, I really don't want to carry. I need the money to buy my next house. Okay. What if I found someone to carry it for you? Would that be okay? That's pretty much the conversation. So with that seller, do you talk to them about what you're going to do on the other end where you're going to increase the price from 100 to 115 and put in this financing with this investor on the 70% and you're in on the 30,000? them that option and I show them this is why I can sell your home for more money and explain how they should do it and they can do it. And if they say they don't really want to, and that's the knee-jerk reaction for most people is, no, we just don't. I said, well, I'll tell you what, let's just, I'm going to give you the opportunity. If we get an offer that comes in 
your home, you get the first chance. So, you know, don't obsess over it. If you don't want to do it, I'll find somebody else who will. And I have a line of retirees that are competent a bit to get 35 times more than they're making at the bank. So you'd present this entire package to the seller if they want to do some seller carryback financing and become the bank themselves. And they either say yes or no. And if they say yes, then you'll do it that way. And they do the 70000 on the bottom. Or if they don't want to do that, you'll bring in the retiree and your financing, your note to finish things off. That makes a lot of sense. So they know exactly what's going to be going on in the beginning. And that was my first question. Second question I'm sure people want to know is, how do you deal with the appraisal? You're moving the price from 100 to 115. How would it get appraised? When you're doing private financing, there is no appraisal. So basically, anybody that's having appraisal problems, in a rising market, you're going to always have appraisal problems. And this is probably the most misunderstood part of the real estate process is I've seen people at their homes have the appraisal in a plexiglass holder on the countertop, like framed, like, look at what my house is worth. And, you know, the appraiser is hired by the bank to let the bank know if they're making a good investment. So is it common for someone to pay this much money in a home with these amenities in this area. That's what the appraisal's job is, is to show the bank that, yes, other people have paid this much. So just by its very nature, appraisals have to look backward in time. They're looking in the rearview mirror. Whereas a real estate broker, when you go out to someone's home, you look at the supply and demand and you say, wow, there's only seven homes for sale within a mile of here, and there's 32 under contract right now. So the supply and demand tells us you can get a much higher price for that home. Just, you know, what's the last piece of plywood worth before the hurricane shows up? I mean, it's just the nature of a free market economy. Something is worth what a buyer's willing to pay and a seller's willing to accept. So since there's no traditional bank involved, there's no appraisal needed. Do the buyers in these transactions ever request an appraisal? They can. That's their right. And they can pay for the appraisal if they would like. And in your experience, do they typically do that? Nope. And they typically never ask for any repairs, and they typically pay their own closing costs. The second that's going to be in there, what is the typical interest rate on the second? Usually we do the seconds at eight. Oh, that's not much more. And that varies. I have people in Texas, and, and it depends on the price point of the property. What really dictates what you can charge is it has to be a good deal for the buyer. And the buyer, you know, here's someone that's paying rent. And let's just say their rent is $950 a month or $1,100 a month. Or, you know, that's common in our market. That's pretty much the price in central Tucson for a three-bedroom, two-bath home. So my goal on that house is to make their mortgage payment out the door with taxes and insurance and everything less than they would pay to rent that house. So that makes it a good deal for the buyer. They're getting market appreciation, they're paying down principal, they're getting all of the income tax benefits of mortgage interest and property tax that they now get to claim, and they're saving money on rent. So when you add all those up, I've actually had transactions where the benefits that that buyer was realizing was more than they were paying in a payment. They're getting more money back in taxes. Rent is not a deductible event, so they get more money back in taxes right in their paycheck. And also they're getting, if they have rent savings, and most of the deals that I do, and this is why I prefer the lower price point, 
And most real estate agents get paid commission on the price point that they sell. So they always try to push the price point higher. I'm actually going for the lowest price points I can find, you know, of properties that are not in a war zone. But I want to get the highest demand for property. And I'm finding the people that aren't looking on the MLS because they've been told they can't get a loan by a bank. So they're not shopping on the MLS. They're actually shopping for a rental. And I educate them that they can buy a home, which is what they want anyway. It's still the great American dream. And I'm giving them something no one else would give them. And it's not necessarily a bad deal for this buyer. This buyer is getting a reasonable interest rate. The blended rate would be somewhere around, I'm guessing, 7.2 or 7.3%. They are getting into a home. Now, when you are putting forward these loans on the first and the second, are there any origination fees or costs to get that loan that are paid out to the lender in this case, who is this retired person or yourself? We have no upfront fees, no points, no prepayment penalties. It's just a straight up loan. They're closing costs. I have a lender that qualifies them for $500 that makes sure that they're compliant with Dodd-Frank. And uh, basically that's their closing cost, 500 bucks plus $100 to set up the servicing and then uh, half of title, half of escrow. Help me out with a couple of those last things that you said. You said Dodd-Frank, $500. You have to send them to a lender. What's that? Okay. So the Dodd-Frank, the teeth in the Dodd-Frank Act is the ability to pay. And I'm very much in favor of that aspect of the um, Dodd-Frank Act, which said, if you give a loan to someone who doesn't have the ability to pay, they have three years to come back to you and say, you should not have given me that loan. I would like my down payment and all of my payments back. And that scared the heck out of most private investors. And so by qualifying them through a licensed mortgage loan originator, now they've filled out a mortgage application. They ran them through their software. They qualified for the loan. It will be very difficult for that person to come back later and say, hey, I shouldn't have gotten this loan. I couldn't qualify because all you have to do is pull out their mortgage application and say, where did you lie? Because from the information you gave, you could qualify. So that's what took away the uh, onus. Most hard money investors or private money investors who financed all these lower price properties um, just gave up when Dodd-Frank came out. It scared the heck out of them and they just backed out of the market. I mean, you've got places, neighborhoods in Jackson, Mississippi, that 80% of all the homes are seller financed. Banks don't even go there. And you know, it's just across the South, the people that really got hurt by this were the low price point markets, under $50,000 markets, where banks won't even go in there because they can't make a profit at 50. Because Dodd-Frank came in and said, the most you can charge is 5% of the loan amount. Well, the banks have to count the processing, the underwriting, and the appraisal as a loan charge, which, you know, if you're selling a $35,000 double wide, 5%, and that's that's what, 1700 bucks is what you can make on a loan? So banks just backed out and went away. And they don't have that option. What that law did in trying to protect people, it actually protected them right out of homeownership. Now, Bob, you also mentioned they would need to pay $100 to set up servicing. What is that? So account servicing, you can do it through a title company. There are national loan servicing companies that basically they are the referee of the transaction, so to speak. The buyer makes one check payable to them. The 
servicing company then turns around and pays the first position note, pays the second, pays the property tax, pays the, the insurance just like a bank would. So we don't leave it up to the buyer because those taxes and insurance could get in front of the collateral on the loan. So this way, everything is paid, one check made out to a servicing company. And then it makes notes are very flexible. You can sell your notes to other people. And as long as they're going through a servicing company, the buyer never even knows they've been sold. Okay. And the servicing company, the $100, is that a one-time fee? Is that a monthly, quarterly, annual fee? Yeah, that's a one-time setup fee. And it varies by lenders. You might pay as much as 250 but compare that to any bank's closing costs. And the setup fee is a joke. The monthly servicing fee runs typically 15 to $20 per loan per month. And for that, they're doing the escrowing the money for taxes and insurance. They're sending the 1098 and 1099 out to the borrower and the lender at the end of the year and doing all the accounting. So it's actually a very inexpensive, and it gets you out of the paperwork business. Right. Now, what happens if the borrower stops paying? Who is going to proceed against them? Would it be the servicing company or would it be you as the note holder? Well, the note holders would own the note. I mean, they would. the servicing company has attorneys and you know, it depends on the state that you're working in. And this is why it's very wise to know your state's foreclosure laws. Texas is the fastest in the country and Arizona is about 90 days. Um, some states like Florida, New Jersey, New York, they're over 1,000 days to foreclose, some as many as 1,500 days to foreclose. So I obviously would not want to hold notes in areas like that. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now back to the show. These loans that you've set up, how many of these type of transactions have you set up over the years? You know, that's why my numbers went way down. You don't need a lot. And basically, you know, one a week is a good number. And, and again, I'm not, I, I'm the coordinator, I'm putting the people together. My job, and this is any real estate agent, if you ask them what their real job is, we are all educators. We educate people about the market. We educate them why their house is worth this much and not that much. We educate buyers. You're not going to get a home for this much. So we all educate people. So my job is to educate the buyer that this is why you want to own a home and these are all the benefits that you're going to have. It's to educate the seller that if you want to get a fast sale and the most money out of your home, this is the best way to sell it and educate the retired person that you know it's possible to be the bank. When you travel the world, buildings in every major city of the world, the tallest building in the city has the name of a bank on the side. There's a reason for that. And I can just give you a, a quick example. The buyer on a $100,000 home that we just talked about, and we sold it at the high end of the market range at 115. That buyer's payment uh, would be 854 dollars, and assuming they were paying 950 in rent, their savings every month would be 95 dollars. The income tax refund that they would get from their job is 130 dollars a month. 
that they get extra in their paycheck just by having the mortgage interest and the property tax deduction. So right there, there's $200 over and above what they're getting right now because rent is not deductible. That's $200 of extra money left in their checking account starting this month. And then the long-term benefits, the principal on the loans is not a lot, $52 a month. And then assuming a 3% appreciation, we know that appreciation is not linear, but it does occur typically. At 3%, it would be $250 a month in appreciation. So the long-term benefits between paying down the equity and having market equity that the, the market gives to you is $302 a month. The um, money you're getting from your extra in your paycheck and the savings in your rent is over $200 a month. So right there is $500 off that you're getting back of the 854 that you're paying. So, I mean, you're living here for how much? 354 after benefits? Um, how much was your rent again? 950? It's pretty much a slam dunk. So that's the biggest thing is, wait a minute, you're getting these buyers to pay a premium price. Well, people pay a premium price for a home on a golf course. They pay a premium price for a home with granite countertops and stainless steel appliances. And they will pay a premium price for someone who is willing to help them get a house when no one else will. So if you just think about the opportunity here, how many competitors are seeking the clients that I'm seeking? Nobody, because these buyers don't even think they can buy a home. Are there other people doing what you're doing? Very few. And I've trained a lot. I actually I created some software to make these deals. I can put in 10 data points and just hit the button and just put in the information. And it'll print out a report for the buyer, the seller, the retiree. And uh, it's, it's basically uh, I did it for myself, and then I built it into a website so that we could get to it from anywhere and also that none of the uh, agents in my brokerage would have the actual code. So if they left my company, they wouldn't take my intellectual property with them. Anyway, I created this site called notecarry.com and I showed it at one of my, I, I do a seminar once a year and I've been doing this since 2009 and I donate all the money to Make-A-Wish Foundation. As a matter of fact, that's who you write your check to. And each year we raise about $50,000 for Make-A-Wish by doing this. And in 2013, I showed my software at the conference and all these people like, hey, we want that. And it's like, no, it's mine, you know. <laughs> uh, but I ended up developing it into a uh, product. I've got several hundred users across the country, and I've got people in my weekly mentoring calls from 28 states. So it's kind of grown into a life of its own. But, you know, what's really neat about this is this residual commission. Basically, instead of selling a home, and then you don't get paid again until you sell another one and another one and another one, this is you sell a home once and you get paid every month for the next 30 years, of course, we know that most people are going to not last 30 years. They're going to probably move in five to seven. And when they do, who do you think they're going to call back? If they needed a loan. People are creatures of habit. If they needed private money the first time, they're going to need it the second time too. And I've got one home I just actually made my fifth commission on since 2013. <laughs> so. Well, Bob, a couple Questions, a couple more questions. You said you're doing about one a week, about 50 a year. How many of those, in your experience, are going to continue to pay? In other words, how many default and stop making their payment? I've had zero defaults. Wow. And I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, someone just put down 
$15,000 against a home that, you know, on the MLS, the median sale price is $100,000. So that's a 15% down payment. If you go back through the recession, there's a report published out of the University of North Carolina. And if you look at all of the FHA loans that the people had a 700 or greater credit score, during the seven years of the recession, 14% of those loans failed, even though the people had a 700 score. And that's because they only put down 3%. And they actually charted this, uh, as your down payment goes higher, the default rate went lower. When you hit 15%, your default rate nationally, during the worst time in our country's history since the Great Depression, the default rate was 1% on 15% down loans. So if you think about this, and this is my goal, is to have their payment be cheaper than rent. So if they chose not to pay me, that would mean moving across the street and paying someone else more. And you're getting that low default rate because you're targeting that 15% down. That now has become a number for you because you know the default rate goes down and they're more committed to making this work. Correct. And of all the people that call, and by the way, the best place to find these buyers, I specifically target contractors. These are self-employed business owners that are in the trades and most banks don't like giving them loans. So I actually put up bandit signs in the industrial areas of the city down by the roofing supply store, the plumbing supply store, the electrical supply store. And, and I, that's where I get the majority of my buyers for these homes. They're contractors that are self-employed. They're in the trades. This is why they never ask for any repairs. They can do it cheaper than I can. <laughs> right. And so basically, you know, you think about it from a homeowner's perspective, they can pretty much expect that the buyer is going to ask for their closing costs. And they also can expect that there's going to be some repairs. So with my buyers, those are two things. There's 3% that they're not paying in closing costs and 2% that they're not paying in repairs. That seller is going to actually net 5% more, even if they don't carry the paper, they're going to net 5% more on their home sale than they will if they sold it in a traditional method. I like how you are finding your buyers how do you find the retired people? How do you find the people with the money that they want to put into the transaction, say, in that first position and receive, as you've mentioned in our example, 7%? Well, this is interesting. Money, you don't advertise for money. First of all, it's a securities violation. And the secondly, money comes with trust. So being a real estate broker, people have already trusted me once to sell their home. Having sold nearly 4,000 homes, I've got a huge database of people, and I don't really send out that many. I mean, if I have a loan opportunity, if someone that doesn't want to carry, I'll send out a quick email to like 22 people that I've sold their home and I've had the you know relationship with for quite some time. And usually, and I'm not exaggerating, I mean, within a minute, I'll get a response if somebody wants to fund that loan. It's just there's so much idle money. There's $13 trillion sitting in cash in the banks in this country, and there's another $10 trillion in retirement accounts sitting in cash. It's estimated one-third of all retirement accounts are in cash because the people are paralyzed. They don't know what to do with their money. Is the money that's coming for the first position loan, is that typically coming from some kind of self-directed retirement account, or is it savings in a bank? Both. I would say 50-50. Uh, the older 
people in their 70s, and I, I usually just ask you know, some of my students, who has more money, older people or younger people? Well, older people have had more time to acquire it or, and accumulate it. So the um, generation in their 70s, they grew up their whole life that the bank was the safest place to put their money, and they're bleeding um, because inflation's eating them alive. And when... Um, and, and this is a process. It's not a, an event, right? You don't just say, hey, you should do this and expect that people are going to clamor. You're just starting the conversation. And then basically just they'll bubble up the people over time. And you just, each time you do one, you know, post it on Facebook. Hey, great. We sold this home with financing this new couple. Just here's a picture of them in front of the new home we just sold them. And uh, talk about that deal. And then it just kind of stimulates interest. Well, how does that financing work? And Oh, and now this couple that had their money in Wells Fargo is actually getting 35 times more than they would get. It would take them 35 years to earn as much as they're getting right now on their money. And just think about that. The next time you go to the grocery store, would you rather have one bag of groceries or 35 bags of groceries for the same amount of money? That's the difference between this loan and what you're in right now at the bank making 0.2. These investors, these retired folks, do they have to be, quote, accredited investors? Do you have to, you know, put them through some type of criteria test? No, they are not investing in a fund. I have no control over their loan. I mean, this is an investment that they are making personally with either their IRA or their savings account. It's just like them choosing to buy a stock. If you were going to put together a fund and pool a bunch of money, then yes, you would have to make sure that they're accredited or and you have to do the uh, security and exchange filing. Uh, we don't do that. This is the property. And you never really find the investor until you have the deal in place because not only do they want to know what property they're getting for collateral, and they want to, this is where it's really neat to, you know, how much control do you have over Wall Street and the stock that you might buy on Wall Street? Well, this is in a local market. You can drive by and actually take a look at your investment every day. If you would like to, and I actually like the buyers, to meet the investors at the closing table and thank them for giving them a loan. And then I explained to that buyer, now these people are retired and this is how they buy their groceries. So this isn't some bank you can just be late on your payment. These people are waiting for your check to buy their groceries. And this is why I think, and we don't take everybody. We take probably 15% of the people that call. We send them to the lender. And what I don't care about is, did you have a foreclosure five years ago? I don't care. In Arizona, the builders stopped building homes. So if you were working at JCPenney's selling curtains, I mean, nobody's building new windows. So basically, you lost your job. And I mean, it just rippled through the entire economy. So I'm not at all worried about that. What I am concerned about is, do you pay your other bills on time? If you're currently late on other bills, you're disqualified. And the skin in the game is by far the best indicator of whether or not they're going to pay. And I don't deviate from the minimum standards of down payment. Finding the sellers, the folks that own the home that want to go through this process and have a quick, easy sell and take a discount in cash, you know, because they're eliminating the fees, take the 90000 in our example, or I think 88000 What percentage of the sellers that you present that to do want to go down this path and have that quick sell and take their 88000 and walk away? Well over half. And as far as the uh appointments that I go on, I get more than 90% of my listing appointments. When you're looking for these people to sell these homes, are you advertising, looking for people to sell homes in? 
in a different way than you would if you were just going to be a traditional broker? In other words, are you just getting all the normal leads you would typically get as a broker and you're just simply presenting this offer to them and that's where the opportunity is popping up? Or are you somehow specifically targeting folks that would be more acceptable of this proposal? I target people. And I'll tell you who I target. I actually go on Craigslist and I look for houses that are for rent. So think about it. You're a landlord. One third of all the homes in the United States were converted to rentals during the recession. That's because they couldn't sell and they needed to move on with their life. So they rented the home out instead. So do you think the last tenant left that house in pristine condition? (laughs) Not likely. So these people more than likely just spent the last two weekends of their life cleaning someone else's dirt, right? And now they got the house all back and it's finally looking nice. Deep down inside, they really don't want to start the process over again, but they don't know anything else to do. So when you contact them and say, how would you like to make more money and never have another tenant call again? People are receptive to that. And when I say more money, I may not get more in a note payment than the gross rent, but I'm not paying a property manager. I'm not paying property taxes. I'm not paying insurance. I'm not paying repairs. I'm not paying maintenance. I never have the vacancy thief come take all of my money. So basically, I note that just is mailbox money as opposed to the tenants and toilets and termites and trash that you get with rental property. So if you're going out to these reluctant landlords and offering them this proposition where they do the seller carry financing or they could have somebody else come in, what percentage of the time does that reluctant landlord want that note, want to do the note and take the payment? And what percentage of the time do they just want to cash out and take the 88000 and let you take care of it from there? You know, it's 50-50 and it really depends on the people's situation. And that's why, you know, you, God gave you two ears and one mouth. I mean, you listen to what they need and you offer them what they need. So recently we had a retired couple that has a dozen rental properties. and. So he's now 77 years old, and he's getting too old to be climbing ladders and fixing air conditioners in 105-degree weather. So this opportunity, these are their babies. You know, it's just like they've had these properties and nurtured them for the last 20, 30 years. So you just ask them a simple question. When you sell this home, what are you going to do with the money? Banks are paying 0.2. Stock market's a roller coaster. You never know from one day to the next what you're going to get. You know, what could you possibly invest in that you know better than these homes that you've had for 20 to 30 years? So wouldn't it make sense to hold these as an investment? And then also just, you know, you ask them, uh, do you think if you died tomorrow, do you think your kids would keep your rental properties? Oh, heck no. They'd sell them before I'm in the ground. So it's like, well, you think if you had an income stream coming in that they would cash the checks every month just from the notes. Oh yeah, they'd take that. So, I mean, it just, it makes sense. And this is, you know, every family has at least one child that is not good with money. And you can just watch people look at each other and nod their head, knowing which kid that is. Right. And uh, so this is a way that you can actually set your child up for decades of knowing that they're going to be okay because there's a steady stream of income coming in 20 years after you're gone. And so it just makes a a lot of sense. And then another really good source of property is the flippers. And if you're out there meeting with fix and flip people, arrange to meet them at a property and just ask one simple question. 
what is the biggest challenge you have in the market today? And then just zip your lip and, and just let them rant. Oh my gosh, these FHA buyers, they come in with blue tape. They want everything fixed. The appraisers are killing me. I have to lower the price all the time. They all want 3% in closing costs. And they're just basically telling you they want the deal you have. So I said, well, how many homes did you sell last year? I did 100. Okay, how many did you carry the paper on? None. Why? Well, you realize that you could have probably gotten 10000 more for every one of those 100 homes, which is a million dollars, right? And you also realize you'd be making 8% on that million dollars, which is $80,000 a year for the next 30 years. You sure you don't want to do some carrying? And then they, the knee-jerk for them is, yeah, but I need my money to buy the next house. And then I just say, well, what if I found someone else to finance it for you? So let's be clear. If someone else finances it for you, the premium price that's being paid is going to go to the person that's actually doing the financing. However, you're going to benefit by not having any closing costs. The buyers all pay their own closing costs and more than likely no repairs unless there's something drastically wrong with your home. So right there is 5% in your pocket on every single house that you sell. So I have a couple of guys in Tucson that own ugly house franchises and they're married to real estate agents and they list their properties with me. That's funny. <laughs> well, Bob, let me ask another question. I'm sure that's on everybody's mind that's been listening to us. You mentioned that the way this thing works in the very beginning, the way you're part of it is that instead of taking a commission, you put up, quote, $30,000 worth of financing. Now, you've created that. You've made it out of thin air. But that when you ran your numbers, basically, you're really going to need to put up about $5,000 of your own money that'll turn into a $30,000 note, which is right. six times your money right off the bat, which is pretty amazing. And then you're going to get payments on that 30000 over time. And that's all really cool. The question is for people, how are they going to come up with the 5000 to put into the deal? Um, if you don't have it, that note, just for instance, that 8% note, if you if they can't finance it, tell them to call me. <laughs> I've got a, people beating my door down. What if you lowered the price of that note to $20,000? Is that still better than a $3,000 commission? You could sell that note for 20, and the person that bought that $30,000 note for 20 would be earning a 12.5% yield on their money. You would sell it in a heartbeat. I mean, if you put that out to a, a local investor club, you, you would have people beating your door down for that deal. But the idea is, what if you put it in your Roth IRA? And your Roth IRA bought that note for $5,000. And then your Roth IRA sold it for $20,000. How much taxes do? Zip. Zip. You just quadrupled your, your tax-free Roth IRA account with one deal. So now, what if you put one deal a quarter in your Roth and the rest of them you just did a commission or sold the note or, you know, and you can do it with a trade-out commission and just have someone else finance it and you earn a commission. I mean, if here's a guy that was going to accept $88,000 and you walk in and even if they don't do the financing themselves and they walk out of closing with $100,000, do you think they're happy? How much are you worth? You just put $12,000 more in their pocket. I mean, you could charge 10% or more, and not that I'm price fixing, but and still 10% on a $115,000 sale, they would still net more money than anybody else could gross them. Bob? You're basically saying 
your original answer was take that $30,000 note, discount it, sell it, turn it into cash, and that becomes your commission, which would typically be a lot larger than, in our example here, a $3,000 commission. It would be multiples of that for a little bit more work. But you're in control of the entire transaction. From start to finish, how long do these transactions typically take for you to start them and then completely close them out where everything's in place? Most of our deals are in and out in less than three weeks. Most would be under two weeks. And if your numbers are correct, I'm just going to throw this out for fun, and I could be off. I realize that. But if you're doing 50 a year, and in a typical one, is say, as an example, is $30,000 notes, if I'm adding that up correctly, you have like $1.5 million in notes per year. Is that correct? That's correct. And then there's going to be a pretty sweet income stream coming off that. I'm guessing something north of $100,000 for that package in income coming in each year as well. Right. And what's really neat is all of the deals that we did last year, those notes are kicking out cash every month. And all of the notes that we've purchased this year came from the income of the notes we made last year. It starts to self-fund. It is. It's already self-funding. But I just want to hopefully use this opportunity. It's taken me four years to perfect this process. And it's just very, very easy. I've got people all over the country that are able to replicate it and use it in their market. I have my training event coming up. Again, 100% of the money goes to Make-A-Wish Foundation. And if you want to come to the conference and see it firsthand and meet a whole bunch of people around the country that are doing it, you can just go to notebusinessbuilder.com. And they can learn more there. And if this sounds like something that's interesting to them, they could start learning the ropes and maybe put these type of transactions together. Bob, this has been real exciting. I really appreciate you walking us through this. Uh, this is a little different than what we typically talk about. Hit a lot of very interesting points. But I think what I'd like to do here is, uh, I know we're running out of time, and so I want to start wrapping this up. But let me ask one last thing. If, does this kind of process work in all markets? I mean, we've been in a high up appreciating market. Do you think this is going to change if the market flattens or starts to decline? I think there will always be people that can't qualify for a loan. And they're not bad people. They're self-employed people. They haven't been on their job for two years. They started a new company. And we just did a deal in San Francisco, the highest priced median home price in the nation, over a million dollars. And a lady that has a startup internet company put $300,000 cash down on a $1.3 million condo. And the homeowner that actually, uh, own the property, carried the note, and we broke the note into two pieces. We do that just so it's easier to sell. And that first position note is very well secured. Think, you know, what if the lady doesn't pay? Well, you think she's going to walk away from $300,000? Hmm. And you'd almost lay awake at night hoping she didn't pay you. Your belief is that this will play out in any type of economy, even if we hit a recession? Well, if you look at the recession, what happened to rents during the recession? Rents actually went up. So in the event someone was unable to pay you, um, now to move across the street is going to cost them more money than it is right now. And that's my goal of looking at the lower end of the price point, because at the low price points, I can make the payment less than rent. If you're in a high-priced California market, a lot of the people in my no-carry group are basically 
finding other markets to invest in that are less expensive. Bob, let me ask you one last question. Where do you want to take this? What do you see as the end game for you? Are you trying to accumulate a certain number of notes? Are you trying to put together a certain number of transactions? What's your end game? Where are you trying to go? What's your big goal with this? My first goal, I have a two-phase goal. One was to get all of my monthly operating costs that I need to maintain my household paid for with notes. So now I don't have to, before I go on a vacation, go run and work double duty trying to get the pipeline full of homes that are going to close. So when I get back, I don't have a two-month lull of no paychecks. So in basically two and a half years' time, that is accomplished. So, uh, And we're already a year and a half into it. So the big thing is, first of all, get my monthly nut, if you will, covered, um, and then start investing my retirement funds as much as possible. And we already have plenty of notes in our retirement. Uh, but if you can use your self-directed funds with a Roth IRA, a Coverdale, or a health savings account and invest in notes, then that is tax-free income. And, you know, the goal is to, I'm 50, I'll be 58 years old here shortly. And uh, basically in a year and a half, I can tap my Roth IRA. So that's kind of my, I don't think I'm ever going to retire. I just love what I do. And I meet pretty much every seller in my company. But uh, just from a stress level, I had 28 W-2 employees during the recession when we were pushing 600 plus houses. I had 22 agents on my team. I now have a company where my company is my wife and I, my brother, and two Spanish-speaking buyer agents, and that's all I have. I sold my building, and I invested the money in notes. So now instead of paying $4,000 a month for a building, I'm earning $3,000 a month in note income. That was a $7,000 a month swing. We did the same thing with our vacation home, and so much easier not having any drama and basically Everybody says, well, do you list these on the MLS? And the answer is no, because I can't. Basically, if someone else brings in a buyer, I never even meet that person. How would I possibly recommend that one of my past clients lend money to someone that I've never met? It doesn't make sense. So basically, this process is for the people who patronize my company, and that's all. Bob, that's fantastic. This has been a very exciting interview, a lot of interesting information that has come out. I really appreciate you taking the time. Last question, if anybody wants to go down this path, what are the recommendations you have for them? You mentioned that they could go to your annual seminar if they, for some reason, are listening to this and the seminar is not happening for, say, 10 months. Any other recommendations for how they could learn about this side of the business? If you want to email, I'll give you my personal email. Bob at noteperry.com, N-O-T-E-P-A-R-R-Y.com. And I do webinars every Tuesday. And what a lot of people like to do is jump in on a couple of webinars and listen in and then see if they think that it's good for them. And if that's the case, then they can uh, join my my mentoring group. And uh, we have people all over the country. And what's really interesting is my group is about half uh, people that have deals and half people that have money. And only half of my members are licensed real estate agents. There's several 
retired people that are looking for a home for their money. So we, we fund deals every week on the webinars where somebody has a deal and we package it up and put it out there. And just in the little pat box during the conference, you got people that are taking on the loan or splitting the loan between two or three of them. And it's a, a very, very nice group of people. And it's just all like-minded. Let's make a win-win-win deal. And that's how I got the name of my company is, you know, everybody wins. You don't make anything one-sided because it won't last. And that's why I have no defaults because the first person I looked out for was that buyer to make sure it was a good deal for them. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Not a problem, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well, Bob, you're working smarter, not harder. You figured out a way to earn twice as much by selling half as many homes. You mastered creative financing to solve problems for three groups of people. Sellers with a home that needs repairs, buyers with income but poor credit, and retirees who need a better return on invested capital. You are building wealth by moving from broker to banker. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who is an industry icon and whose team sold 1,772 homes last year worth $750 million. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.